Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them at this point and uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. should be easy to find in your Bibles. Just open it, and there it is. Genesis chapter 1, the very first book of the Bible. This is where uh, we're going to be, at least to get started for today. We'll find our way into Genesis chapter 2 as well. So uh, Genesis 1 and 2 is where we're going to be. Uh, We are in the midst of a series called Clouded, uh, talking about uh, the fog of sexuality in our culture uh, and related issues. And uh, this morning we find ourselves on part six. I want to thank Gary for filling in for me and doing such a wonderful job talking about the subject of singleness last Sunday. If you happen to miss that sermon, you can find it on our website, or if you uh, have iTunes, you can find it at Grace Bible Church there. Uh, Wonderful sermon. I really recommend it. Uh, Pass it along. Uh, So I hope you're there. Genesis chapter one and uh, chapter two is where we're going to be. Let's pray and we'll dive right in. So let's pray, church. Father, thank you for the morning, for the privilege of uh, getting to sit under your word. Lord, we pray that uh, you would help our hearts to be open to hear what you would have for us as we continue to talk about uh, issues related to sexuality, things that are uh, near and dear to every single one of us and that matter. You have spoken clearly in your word on these subjects, and we want to submit ourselves to you for our good and for our joy and for your glory, because anything that you tell us to do, any prohibition you give to us is because you created us to know you and to love you and to obey you, and you created this world with purpose and order and meaning, and we want to fall in line with that, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus. And so we pray that you would help us to do that better as a result of looking into your word today and as the result of, of my words. And so uh, would you be among us, Holy Spirit? Would you convict? Would you encourage? Would you strengthen? Would you illuminate our hearts and our minds so that we might be obedient followers of Christ? We thank you for the morning and for the chance to look into your word. We ask that you would be with us in the name of Jesus. And all of God's people together said, Amen. Amen. I want to begin this morning with uh, an email that my brother-in-law uh, showed us uh, last time he was uh, up here in Illinois, and he passed it along, and uh, he was sharing this email with me, and the, the title of the email, it's just a short article, uh, is this, 12 Things That Men Do Differently uh, Than Women. So 12 things, according to, to this little email that my brother-in-law shared with me, 12 things that men do differently than women. So i like to just share these 12 things with you to get us rolling this morning. First of all, as it relates to nicknames. If Laura, Kate, and Sarah go out for lunch, they will call each other Laura, Kate, and Sarah. If Mike, Davis, and John go out to lunch, they will affectionately refer to one another as fat boy, stupid head, and numb knuckle. As it relates to eating out, when the bill arrives, Mike, Dave, and John will each throw in a $20 bill, even though they know the total is only $32.50. None of them will actually have anything smaller, and none of them will actually admit that they want change back. When the girls get their bill, out comes the pocket calculators. As it relates to money, a man will pay $2 for a $1 item that he needs. A woman will pay $1 for a $2 item that she doesn't need but is on sale. Bathrooms. A man has six items in his bathroom. Can you name them? A toothbrush, toothpaste, razor, shampoo, soap, and of course a towel. The average number of items in the typical woman's bathroom is 337. And a man would not be able to identify more than 20 of these items. 
<laughs> as it comes as it relates to arguments. A woman has the last word in any argument. Anything a man says after that is actually the beginning of a new argument. <laughs> word to the wise, man. Uh, as it relates to the future. A woman worries about the future until she gets a husband. A man never worries about the future until he gets a wife. Success. A successful man is one who makes more money than his wife can spend. A a successful woman is the one who can find such a man. As it relates to marriage, a woman marries a man expecting that he will change, but he doesn't. A man marries a woman expecting that she won't change, but she does. What about dressing up? A woman will dress up to go shopping, water the plants, empty the trash, answer the phone, read a book, or get the mail. A man will dress up for two occasions, weddings and funerals, of course. Offspring. A woman knows about all of her children. She knows about the dentist appointments, about their romances, best friends, favorite foods, secret fears, hopes, and dreams. A man, however, is vaguely aware that some short people live in his household. Final thought of the day, a married man should forget his mistakes. There's no use in two people remembering the same thing. So, thanks to uh, my brother-in-law, uh, just a humorous way, I think, to, uh, to get started and to introduce our subject this morning, which is the subject of gender. The subject of gender, gender equalities, gender differences and different uh, gender challenges. Uh, so I have, I have three goals for today. Hopefully it's back on the screen. Three things that I hope to accomplish today. First of all, I want to explore gender equality. That is how men and women are made equal in the sight of God. And we're going to look at Genesis 1 to see how men and women are the same. And then, secondly, I want to look at not only gender uh, equalities, but I want to look into Genesis chapter 2 and explore some gender differences. That is, to, to, to see how men and women are, are different. And then thirdly, I want to discuss one gender challenge. That is, one challenge to what I believe is a, is a biblical understanding of, of manhood and womanhood and gender, and that is the subject of transgenderism. So, three things, gender equalities, gender differences, and then one gender challenge. So if you have your Bibles uh, open to Genesis 1, that's where we're going to get started as we begin to look at gender equality in the scriptures. Uh, It's important to know that when you begin to read your scriptures, you see two creation accounts. Basically, Genesis chapter 1 is a condensed version of the creation account. It's kind of the quick version without all of the details of God creating the world. And there specifically, nestled into that creation account, starting in verse 26 and running through verse 28, we get the creation of of humanity. We get the creation of, of mankind. And specifically what we see in Genesis 1, this kind of overview description of the creation of all that we know is an emphasis on the equality of genders. And so Genesis chapter 1, when we look at the creation of man, we look at the creation of woman, we look at the creation of humanity, there's a distinct emphasis on the equality of the genders. And I hope to bring that out. So let's read this together. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. The scripture uh, reads this way, Then God said... Let us make mankind in our image, 
in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So here we have the overview of God's creating the human race, starting in verse 26. Let us make mankind, humanity, in our image. He gives us a a purpose, right, so that we may rule over the fish and the birds and the livestock and over all the creatures. And then in verse 27, we have language that speaks to the equality of men and women. So God created mankind in his own image, And then he reiterates that in verse 27. In the image of God, he created them. He wants us to know that all of humanity, right, that every single human being is reflective of God's own image. And then there's the distinction at the tail end of verse 27. Male and female, he created them. And so I think two things I want us to point out in this scripture, two things that that show us Uh, how men and women are equal. First of all, both of them share the image of God. That's very clear, right? All of humanity, both those who are made male and those who are made female, the scriptures affirm that every human being, every person, regardless of their gender, is made to reflect something uniquely of the image of God. Four times in these three verses, God affirms that both male and female, all of humanity, reflect his image. And what that means is is this. It means that every human being is valuable. It means that every person, whether boy or girl, whether male or female, is inherently valuable. Now, you may hear that and say, Pastor, we all know that. That's assumed. That's a given. We live in America. Of course, boys and girls are equally valuable. And I'm so very glad that our Judeo-Christian upbringing here in this great land that we live in leads us to say, Pastor, of course, every human being is valuable. Pastor, of course, that females are just as valuable as males, and males are just as valuable as females, of course. And yet the truth is, is that when you look at our world today, this is not the case. There are many cultures that value one gender over another in one way, shape, or form. And I just want to point out one particular culture in which this is true, and that is in the nation of China. The nation of China. You may know something about their policies, but uh, what has been happening and continues to happen there uh, is, is something that I think is appropriately called a gender side. Did you hear that? A gender side. Because what they're doing uh, via the means of abortion, particularly of little girls, via infanticide, that is essentially allowing baby girls that are born to die, abandonment. Right now in China, there are 37 million, with an M, 37 million more men than women. 
And that's because of the one-child policy that exists in China. And in China, families want little boys, and they don't want little girls. And so here in America, it's ho-hum. Every human being is valuable. Every gender is equally valuable, yes. And yet in our world today, this is not the case. This is not the case. And so we as Christians hold a biblical standard of gender, and we fight, and we adopt, and we create orphanages, and we help in places like this when little girls are less valuable than little boys. Secondly, not only do both male and female share the image of God, secondly, both of us, male and female, we share equal responsibility from God. This is clear in Genesis 1, that both male and female, God gives commands. They're to be fruitful. They're to increase in number. They're supposed to rule over creation as God's vice regents, if you will. Both men and women are responsible to God. And what that means is this. It means that every human being is not only responsible to God, but is savable. That is, we all share responsibility to God. We all break that responsibility. We all fall short of that. And that is why the scripture affirms in Galatians 3 and in other places that both men and women come to the cross on equal footing, right? We all come to Jesus to be saved, regardless of if we're men or women. And I could share with you other religions in the world where this is not the case. But here I just want to focus on gender equality. Both male and female made in the image of God. Both male and female share responsibility from God. Both male and female, every human being is inherently valuable. And both male and female, every human being is responsible and savable. And so we see in this little text, these three verses, a a heavy emphasis on the equality between genders. And yet we must not miss the fact that in verse 27, God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, all of humanity, but he made humanity male and he made humanity female. Even in a section that emphasizes equality, God clearly creates two different sexes. It's a simple observation, yet it's an, it's an important foundation as we think about gender equality, gender differences. He creates two different sexes, male and female, embedded in the very biology of the race. Male and female, he created them. And so in Genesis 1, there's gender equality. Both men and women share the image of God. Both men and women are responsible to God and are equally savable through Christ. I want to share a quote from a, a commentator by the name of Matthew Henry. As he, I think he summarizes this section very well on gender equality. He says this. He says, Eve was not taken out of Adam's head to top him, neither out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. And so there's gender equality in Genesis 1. As we move along into Genesis chapter 2, we see a bigger picture. We get more details about the creation of 
everything that we know, and specifically about the creation of mankind, about the creation of Adam, the creation of Eve, the creation of this first marriage. And if, and if Genesis 1 emphasizes gender equality, then as we move into Genesis chapter 2, then what we see is that Genesis chapter 2 actually emphasizes gender distinctions, gender differences, particularly as it relates to the role of men and women in the marriage relationship, the the most fundamental and unique relationship that God has created. And so if you have your Bibles open, just flip one page over and move with me to Genesis chapter 2 as we look at gender differences. I was uh, visiting uh, a few days ago or maybe a few weeks ago at this point, I don't know exactly when it was, with, uh, with Jamie and Lori Wilson. And uh, Jamie shared with me a, a joke, and I want to share it with you because it was, it was good. And uh, the joke goes, goes something like this. Uh, God had created Adam, and uh, Adam is walking in the cool of the day, and he's having a conversation with God, and he's noticed, he's named all the animals, monkeys, lions, elephants, right? He's named all the animals, and not a, not a companion, not a helper has been found for him. And so he's having this conversation with God, explaining to him that he feels a bit lonely and there's really no one else, uh, nothing else like him and all of creation. And God says, take, take, uh, uh, be, be, be in good cheer, okay? Uh, be encouraged because I'm going to create for you a helper. I'm going to create for you a helper. And this, this helper, uh, this woman that I'm going to take uh, and make uh, from your very flesh and from your very bone. She's going to be a wonderful gift of God. She will do anything that you want. She will go anywhere that you want her to go. She will cook for you. She will clean for you. She will do your laundry. She'll clean the bathrooms. And uh, she won't ever complain. She won't ever give her opinion. She won't ever uh, talk back to you. In fact, there'll be no, uh, uh, your relationship will be wonderful. And she's going to be a great helper. And Adam said, that sounds really good. But uh, one thing, God, what's it going to cost? What's it going to cost me? And uh, God says, well, it's just going to cost you an arm and a leg. So Adam thought about it a little bit. He said, well, I've got two arms and I've got two legs. And he, he thought to himself, well, the price is, is kind of high. And so he went back to God and he said, well, God, that sounds good. But what can I get for a rib? <laughs> It's a joke. (laughs) So we see gender equality in Genesis 1. As we move into Genesis 2, we see gender differences. And what I'd like to do is read just portions from Genesis chapter 2. Starting in verse 7, we're going to read 7 through 9, and then we're going to skip and read verses 15 through 23. God's more detailed account about the human race. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the earth, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skipping ahead to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. 
The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the wild birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. So we don't have time to work our way through and talk about all the details here, but what I want to show you is, is several observations that, from this creation account in Genesis 2 that I think highlights the gender distinctions, the, the gender differences as it relates to the husband and the wife in this newly formed marriage. Some observations can be made that I think highlights Adam's God-given leadership role. I'm just going to walk through these. They should be up on the screen. Number one, first of all, God creates Adam first in verse 7. God gives Adam a job to do first, verse 15. God gives prohibitions to Adam first, verses 16 through 17, which he's presumably then to pass it along to his wife. Verse 4, Eve is called a helper, verse 18. Number 5, Adam, he names the animals and he names his wife, verse 19 through 23. And then if you keep reading on into Genesis chapter 3, what you're going to find out is that when Satan attacks this first couple, what he does is he attacks the God-given gender roles within marriage. He subverts them. I think one author by the name of Denny Burke, I think he summarizes these observations well. He says this. He says, As image bearers, man and woman, would have different vocations in their calling as vice-regent and rulers. These different assignments, which are rooted in God's good creation, do nothing to undermine the fundamental fundamental equalities enumerated above, the ones we just talked about in Genesis 1. But they are nevertheless differences, and they do involve a hierarchical ordering of roles between the first man and woman. Man and woman are equal in their essence as divine image bearers, but they are unequal in their roles. The first Adam acts as the leader in his first marriage, and Eve is called to follow his leadership. And so we see in Genesis 2, in particular as it relates to the marriage, gender differences. And what we see is that as we read through the rest of the Bible, in particular the New Testament, it fleshes out this leadership in two areas. It fleshes out the leadership First of all, in the home, and then second of all, in the church. We've spent extensive time in former sermons talking about male and female differences, both in the church and in the home. So I've created this, uh, this uh, hopefully little chart, which we'll get up soon, uh, that I think is a, is a nice summary of what the New Testament teaches, the fundamental role disti- distinctions. So, so first of all, in the home. What we have is both a role and several responsibilities that the New Testament teaches for both husband and wife in this sacred marriage. So the husband's role, 
Uh, you could call it uh, that of head. We get that from Ephesians chapter 5. What that means essentially is that he is to lead in the marriage. He has authority and responsibility to lead the relationship in a God-honoring way. So he's called the head. What are the husband's roles? Uh, four things, really. Uh, one, he's to love. That is, he's supposed to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He's to serve her. Verse 25, as Christ served the church. He's to sanctify her. That is, he is to help her grow in complete holiness. Verse 26 and 27. And he's supposed to care for her as Christ cares for the church. Verse 28 and 30. So the husband's role is that of head. His responsibilities are those four things. What about, what about the wife? Well, you could say that her role could be summarized as that of helper, Genesis 2, verse 18. That essentially means that she supports her husband in leading the marriage in a God-honoring way. So if that's her role, what's, what's the responsibilities? Well, I would submit to you a, a threefold responsibilities from the New Testament. First of all, she's to love her husband, Titus chapter 2. She's to love her husband, Secondly, she's supposed to submit to her husband, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 24. And she's to respect her husband, Ephesians chapter 5. So that's what male-female distinctions look like in, in the home. What does it look like in the church? Just a couple quick statements about what this looks like in the church. We've seen the differences in the home, but in the church, the primary teaching and leadership of the church, that is, qualified god called men, are supposed to be male. We see that in 1 Timothy 3, other places, that the elders in the church are supposed to be men who are responsible for doctrine and leading the church in a God-honoring way. They're, they're called by God and they're qualified. What that means is that women are to exercise their gifts, their full array of gifts, under that qualified male leadership. 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 11. I can give you more details here. But what we see is this picture of both equality in Genesis 1 and distinction, differences in Genesis 2 and 3. So there's equality, and yet there's also differences. What I want to do now for the remainder of our time, we've looked at gender equality and gender differences, but I want to look at just one more topic, one more gender, I call it a gender challenge, that is a cultural, uh, I want to call it a phenomenon, but something that's increasingly uh, in the headlines, something that we are increasingly facing as Christians. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a challenge to how we view gender biblically, both equality and differences, and it's the challenge of what I will call transgenderism. Transgenderism. We'll talk about what that means in, in just a second. I want to share with you a quick story to introduce the subject. Uh, it was probably now two or three weeks ago, but we were in our nightly routine. Uh, I think it was a school night, so the kids were getting their bath. And maybe all three were in the bathtub. I'm not exactly sure. But I know Piper was definitely in the bathtub, and they're playing and squirting and having fun and doing everything kids do in a bath. Getting clean, maybe, I don't know. But they're having fun in their bathtub. And Piper, my, my second one, just really out of, the, out of the blue, I was working on this sermon, it was on my mind, and uh, just kind of completely out of the blue, she said, Dad, I wish I was a boy. Caught me off guard. Dad, I wish I was a boy. And I said, well, why is that, dear? Why, why, do, you, why do you say that? She goes, well... Because I want to wiggle my insert boy part here when I go pee-pee. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's good. <laughs> that's funny. How, what, how do, and I didn't know what to say. <laughs> so I didn't say anything. 
But it's a funny story to illustrate, to illustrate this, this really cultural, culturally sensitive topic, the topic of transgender and transgenderism. As we look at all that's going on in our culture, questions, questions about gender abound. Questions about gender abound in our culture, increasingly so. Questions that maybe we've never even thought of. Questions like this, who or what determines what gender we are? You ever thought about that question? Who or what determines what gender we are? It's a question that's being asked. Number two, is gender a spectrum or is it a state? That is, are you male or, or are you female or are you somewhere in between? Are you male heading towards female? Or are you female heading towards male? Is gender a state that we exist in, or is it a spectrum? It's a question being asked. Can gender truly be changed? Can it be changed? Not just biologically, but otherwise. While determining gender used to be something that was simple, I think, in our culture, I think it was a given that if the doctor said, it's a boy, or if the doctor said, it's a girl, then you were a boy. You were a girl. Gender is increasingly now being determined not by what the doctor says, but by how one feels or how one seems to be learning about what gender they are. Some uh, 700,000 Americans identify as transgender. What do we mean by that? Use the term, try to define it. What does it mean to be transgender? It essentially means that, uh, that their gender identity, that is, if they identify as a boy or a girl, a male, male or a female, their gender identity does not match their physical or their genetic sex. So, for example, you were biologically a male, but you call yourself a female or act or dress in maybe uh, feminine ways. Transgenderism is increasingly mainstream. I don't know if you watch the news or if you watch TV, but increasingly it is becoming not just more popular, but just kind of widespread. It's, it's becoming a cultural issue. I was telling... Uh, Dan Schumacher the other day, as I was preparing for the sermon, we were talking, and I said, oh, I'm going to be talking about the issue of transgender and transgenderism. And he says, the first thing he says to me is, are you going to mention Bruce Jenner? And I said, yes, I am, because the week that I was working on this sermon, I was uh, in Champaign for some reason, and I was getting groceries, and uh, I was standing in line at Meyer, I think it was. And of course, when you stand at line at the grocery store, what do you see? There's People magazine and whatever, right? All these magazines. And plastered across each and every one of these magazines, it sure seemed like, was a picture of Bruce Jenner. Now, I don't really even know who Bruce Jenner is. Oh, I didn't know who Bruce Jenner was. Now I do. Uh, so I did some research. And the People magazine, there, it should be on the screen behind you, uh, the People magazine uh, basically had the headline, Bruce Jenner transitioning into a woman. There it is. Transitioning into a woman. That caught my eye because I was talking about that the week ahead. Secondly, not only if you keep up with the Kardashians or Bruce Jenner is it becoming a 
a part of the cultural conversation. I want to show you a, a May edition of Time magazine. Just this past year, Time magazine, the May edition, read this way. The transgender tipping point. America's next civil rights frontier. America's next civil rights frontier. And the article essentially talks about how transgenderism and transgender people uh, will replace the issue of gay marriage for the civil rights battleground. And so gay marriage is kind of come and gone, time suggests, and the new civil rights battleground will be for those who are transgender. I found that to be pretty interesting. And then followed up by that was in 2014, you may have followed what was going on in Houston. Hopefully we have a picture here. This is a picture of Mayor Anise Parker. And uh, she is the mayor of the great city of Houston there in Texas, where my sister and my brother-in-law reside, and where the Houston Astros play baseball, and the Houston Texans dominate the NFL. No, they probably don't. But they play there. (laughs) They play there, right? Great state of Houston. Well, there in the great state of Houston in 2004, uh, there was a push led by uh, this mayor, Mayor Anise Parker. uh, They almost, almost passed a city ordinance, which amongst a great uh, other things would allow self-identified transgender people to use public restroom facilities for the gender that they identify with rather than the gender that they were given at birth. You may recall uh, that there was kind of a a to-do with this mayor uh, because there was a lawsuit that was filed against the city over this ordinance, and the mayor and her staff essentially subpoenaed several pastor's sermons. Remember that? Maybe it was in the news. Uh, She subpoenaed several pastor's sermons, even though the churches weren't involved in the litigation at all, simply as a scare tactic. And so this is relevant It's going on. It's in our major cities. It's an issue. And so as Christians, we need to understand it, and we need to respond in a biblical way. Here's just one more example. Uh, In December, uh, just this December, this past year, the state of Minnesota, you'll see a picture in the background of what looks like a board meeting, and that's exactly, exactly what it is. Because in December, the state of Minnesota, our brothers up north, right? Minnesota, is that how they say it? The brothers up north, they opened up, Uh, in the girls' high school sporting ranks, they essentially passed a proposition allowing transgender student-athletes to compete in female sports. Essentially what that means is that if you you were in high school and you were physically, biologically a boy, but uh, identified yourself as as female, uh, as uh, as female, then then you would get to play uh, along with the female athletes. And so all of these things, we can move past the pictures, all of these things I, I bring to the forefront because this is some, uh, an issue that is very culturally relevant and it challenges us as Christians. How do we respond to this? How, what should be our response? Well, first of all, we have to understand what the Bible says about gender, about male, female, equality, differences. How should we respond There was a a resolution that was passed this summer by the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, Before I came here, I was self-identified as Southern Baptist, so good job, guys, here, right? Uh, Southern Baptist Convention passed at its annual conference um, an, an article, if you will, a resolution called On Transgender Identity. And it's there in the Welcome Center for you. I've printed up a few copies if you want 
to read it in detail. I find it to be helpful. And I want to summarize and close our sermon by, by summarizing their response. What does this resolution say? How should we as Christians respond to this? Uh, five things. Number one, we should reaffirm. We should reaffirm a biblical definition of both gender and gender roles. My hope is that in this sermon, we've, we've done that. That's, that's what I want to do, is to reaffirm a biblical definition, both of gender and of gender roles. The resolution reads this way. God's design was the creation of two distinct and complementary sexes, male and female, which designate the fundamental distinction that God has embedded in the very biology of human race. And so what this means is that as Christians, we need to think Christianly and biblically about these kind of issues. Gender. How do we do that? Number two, not only should we reaffirm what we believe the Bible teaches, but secondly, we should grieve. We should grieve over the reality of a broken world and a yet-to-be-redeemed world. I quote them, we grieve the reality of human fallenness, which can result in such biological manifestations as intersexuality or psychological manifestations as gender identity confusion. And we point all people to the hope of the redemption of our bodies in Christ. What we mean is this, not only should we just reaffirm biblical definitions of gender and gender roles and beat people over the head with it, with our Bibles. We should reaffirm it, but we should, we should do it in, with humility and with grace and with love and with a grieving, broken heart over the reality in which many people live. It has to be a very difficult thing to be biologically male and to feel like you're female or vice versa. And so we don't come to it with a heavy stick just looking to beat people over the head with it. We come brokenhearted over a fallen world. Number three, we should treat them with love and compassion. Like everybody, like anybody we meet, we treat people who are transgender with love and with compassion. Quote, that, with love, that we love our transgender neighbors, that we seek their good always, and we regard our transgender neighbors as image bearers of the God Almighty, and therefore we condemn acts of abuse or bullying committed against them. And so we stand with them that they, like every human being, is worthy of respect and of not being abused physically, verbally, emotionally. We stand with them for their good. Number four, we oppose the agenda. And I quote, we oppose efforts to alter one's bodily identity. That is through cross-sex uh, hormone therapy or, or gender reassignment surgery to refashion it to conform with one's perceived gender identity. We continue to oppose steadfastly all efforts by any governing official or body to validate transgender identity as morally praiseworthy. So along with reaffirming a biblical definition is there is a place to oppose a growing agenda in our culture. Number five, maybe more importantly, should be number one, share the gospel with them. Like all people, we all are lost. We all are sinners. We all need grace. We all need Christ. And so first and foremost, we share the good news with them. And I quote, we invite all transgender persons to trust in Christ and to experience renewal in the gospel, just like we do everyone else. May God give us grace.
to respond in grace and in truth as our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John 1, was characterized by both grace and by truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the morning that we can sit and look into your word. Father, these are hard subjects, difficult subjects. We find ourselves increasingly in the minority. Our views are often no longer accepted in our culture. Lord, help us to toe the line. Help us to be both full of grace and full of truth. Help help us to speak the truth and yet to do it in love. Lord, we want to emulate your son in every way, in particular as it relates to gender, gender equalities and gender differences, both in our marriages and our homes and in our church and with those in the broad culture around us. Lord, we so desire that all people come to know you through faith in your son. We are all broken people. We all need grace. We all need your help. We all need a new heart so that we would align our will with yours. And so give us humility, give us boldness, and above all, give us grace. We ask it in the name of Jesus and God's people said, amen. Guys,